This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, April 5th, 2017, from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. When it came to the Supreme Court nomination of Neil Gorsuch, the Democrats had a pile of case law to point to. There was the case of the frozen trucker, the case of the evasive jurist, and of course, the case of the stolen seat. But nothing stuck. So now, to quote the Bible's primary source and John Madden his secondary source, they're going for the Hail Mary. Plagiarism. Plagiarism was the case. Large passages of Gorsuch's euthanasia book were parallel in structure and form and language to a legal article. The author of the legal article says she doesn't see the plagiarism. Academics do say it was plagiarism in this example and in some others of Gorsuch's writings. But let's take the euthanasia book. There was the part when Gorsuch and the original article both say esophageal atresia with tracheoesophageal fistula means the esophageal passage from the mouth to the stomach ends in a pouch with an abnormal connection between the trachea and the esophagus. They both say that, but of course he could have said this in so many other ways. For instance, just describe it as someone once did on the internet as a series of pipes. Or don't even say the esophagus, say the food tube the old food tube. If Judge Gorsuch had written that the food tube's connected to the breath tube, but it's a little screwy Louie if you ask me, then he'd be in the free and clear. This has become a divisive, divisive issue where both sides vehemently disagree while at the same time actually agreeing. Bloomberg headline, Gorsuch plagiarism is worthy of embarrassment. Washington Examiner headline, the Gorsuch plagiarism story stinks. So you think they're arguing but parse the arguments. Here's the Washington Examiner story. T. Beckett Adams says the charge, which involves Gorsuch repeating medical terms and not original concepts or ideas, is weak at best. But he's saying it's weak, but it's a charge that sticks. Whereas Bloomberg's Noah Feldman, who's a Harvard law professor and a former Supreme Court clerk, writes, it's poor form not to cite a secondary source from which you've mined primary sources. But it's also not the end of the world or a profound violation of the sort that would call Gorsuch's integrity or judgment into question. In other words, weak at best. I've heard the argument, you know, this is important because plagiarism is stealing. And do we want a justice who steals? Well, in the courts, I guess that's called precedent. But also, it shows the weakness of the analogy. Plagiarism is a theft of ideas, but ideas exist to be stolen. Without stealing ideas, there'd be no progress. And when someone steals an idea, it's not like the original idea goes away. It actually propagates. I mean, me stealing my neighbor's lawnmower doesn't help society. But with plagiarism, all I would have to do is footnote and source the lawnmower, saying this is Jim's lawnmower, and then everything would be fine. You can't make a super strong case that this middling amount of plagiarism should keep a guy off the Supreme Court. You can make a case that never holding a vote for Merrick Garland can keep the next guy off the Supreme Court. And Democrats are making that case, and they are going to lose. And that is the kind of case that definitely can't be appealed up to the Supreme Court. On the show today, I spiel about Donald Trump's take on Syria, which was to take on the Obama administration. 
But first, Charlie McDowell is the director of a new movie called The Discovery. It's out on Netflix. It stars Jason Siegel at his wacky least and Rooney Mara at her usual level of transcendence. Charlie has a way around actors. His parents are Malcolm McDowell and Mary Steenburgen. Maybe that is why. And maybe that's why his second, only a second feature film is so fully realized. Look, I can't comment on terminology like soul and heaven and afterlife, but what I can say with scientific certainty is that once the body dies, some part of our consciousness leaves us and travels to a new plane. The afterlife exists, and Robert Redford found it. Yet stands to reason, right? If anyone's going to find it, it's going to be Redford. Actually, what that is, the central conceit of the new film, The Discovery, debuting on Netflix. It's set in a future, maybe that's 10 minutes away. Well, 10 minutes and one giant discovery. So after Robert Redford as Dr. Thomas Harbour tells the world about life after death, millions of people begin essentially taking him up on his promise, which means mass suicides. Jason Siegel plays a neurologist who's skeptical of claims of the afterlife. He's not saying that it's fake. He just thinks it's dangerous for people to subscribe to this theory so completely. Rooney Mara is planning a stay at a facility that the doctor runs and has what we would call before the discovery suicidal ideation. And now we might call travel plans. The director and co-writer is Charlie McDowell, and I discover him sitting in a chair right next to me. Hello, Charlie. How How's you doing? How's it going? How are you? Does it start with the idea? What, you know, what if there's an afterlife and what does that mean? Yeah, it starts with the kind of the global, big, broad idea of that. And then we start to hone in on yeah. what we want no, to I say. No, I mean, when you thought of it. Is yeah, that how it yeah. started with so, you? Yeah. yeah. So it was, what if the afterlife was scientifically proven? Yeah. Um, my writing partner, Justin, later pitched me that idea. Um, and I was like, okay, well, what else? And he goes, no, that, that's what I have. And it's like, okay, well then let's start figuring out where we'd go from here. So we started to have these conversations of, okay, what would, what would we as humans do? Um, and then this idea of suicide came up because what if death isn't death anymore? What if it's not such a precious thing and idea? What if it's, you're just going to a new place? So really you're just continuing your life somewhere else. Do you think technically it's sci-fi? I think I sort of play in a in a place of grounded sci-fi, I'd mm -hmm. say, where it's like it, it's not focused on a futuristic look or society or or the sci-fi being the element that that drives the movie. Really, that it's sort of the backdrop to uh, really what I'm exploring, which is just through the characters. Right. Like I say, it could very well be the present or 10 minutes into into the future. I mean, they have tablets and they drive in cars that right. they drive in now and a ferry. Um, so, but what it reminds me of is like the new kind of sci-fi, at least in movies are, you know, Solaris and the arrival mm -hmm. and interstellar. And what they are is taking the idea of what if, and then talking about the human, the person, right. not about blowing up the white house or something. Yeah. Like that. I, I think it, I call it grounded sci-fi because if you can find a way to connect to, to a person, um, then you can you can bring yourself into the movie. So you ask the question of what if this happened? How would I react? Yeah. And if you can do that in, in a fantastical space, which is ultimately what we're playing in, then it becomes really real and grounded. So I, you know, for me, I look at 
movies like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and Arrival, you know, and, and these are these are sort of simplistic themes, but really, really interesting ideas yeah. that, that goes as far as you can take them. And the lobster. Now, the fact that you'll turn into an animal if you fail to fall in love with someone during your stay here is not something that should upset you or get you down. Now, have you thought of what animal you'd like to be if you end up alone? Yes, a lobster. Although that's lobster, like a different yeah. universe than our own, perhaps slightly tweaked, and yours isn't. Yeah, but yeah, yeah but all you know, all of these films are sort of in that vein. I think it's about taking universal ideas and and telling it in a different way. I also wonder if so. Uh, I forgot who made the Independence Day with Will Smith, um, but whoever the makers of was it Remy Harlan? I don't know. I can't remember. Yeah, one uh, of these Roland huge, Emmerich. Roland Emmerich. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So one of these huge uh, masters <laughs> of disaster. Great movie. Love it. But they would say, "Oh yeah, we got to connect it to the human. We care about Will Smith. We it's his journey and through his eyes." And yet, still, I wonder if all these movies, the ones we mentioned, the Charlie Kaufman movies, are in some way a reaction to the capacity of CGI. Like, because they can mm-hmm. blow up the world, they do blow up the world, and that's the only stakes in the more traditional sci-fi movie. Whereas you yeah. really can Like, sci-fi novels um, are, some of them are about building world, worlds or blowing up worlds, but a lot of them are just about one person. So sci-fi novels haven't changed that much because you could always do whatever you want on the page. So I wonder if movies like yours are a little bit of a backlash to, you know, the technological um, capabilities, which in some way become limitations. Yeah. I mean, even if you just do the math of a script (laughs) with Independence Day, it's like you only have so much room for character. So let's say it's like 30 pages total and then the rest is special effects, stuff blowing up and all of that. You know, what I think Charlie Kaufman and and some of these great filmmakers are doing is it's like, okay, that's all interwoven. So really it's just a character story, but then you add this interesting visual element to it that makes you sort of connect to it more so than if it was just a traditional film. Even though the stakes, essentially, what if the afterlife is real and everyone in the world commits suicide? It's all and only about uh, Jason Siegel's character. But to know that the movie works is that that's all we care about. That's all we're invested in. So that's the test. Yeah, I, I made a conscious decision to not go you know, so global with it in terms of what we explore. Like I really want right, right. to not just... even the, not even that shot of like, or the snippet of uh, news footage or the yeah. headline about massive. It's all, it's all yeah. in the background for me. Again, it's, it's the backdrop and, and, you know, and, and, and that may frustrate some people cause they, it's an interesting idea and they may want to be like, okay, I want to explore and see how, how, where this goes. Well, then you're saying, I want to see a different movie. <laughs> yeah. But, but for me, I, I really wanted it to be through this character and, and just it, it's it's almost like you could remove all of that and still have the same story. And it's just about this guy. So that again, that was just sort of an element that was, OK, we have this really interesting idea that lets us explore really cool themes. But but ultimately, it's a love story between Jason and Rooney. Well, you're also the uh, lead is Jason Siegel. And I would say I don't know if this helps the poster, but Jason Siegel at his ungoofiest yeah. <laughs> so that's something he hasn't really yeah. done. Even when he was David Foster Wallace, I think he had more of the signs of uh, the ridiculous. About yeah, him. I mean, I, I've been spending a lot of time with Jason going around and we're, we've been promoting the movie. And, and what's interesting that he's sort of explained is like when he started off doing comedies, it was like that's where he was at in his place in life. So it was, you know, early 20s. It was like a breakup was the most devastating thing in the world. And then I think when he hit when he finished How I Met Your Mother, he's 34 years old and he's like, OK. I've I've sort of grown up like who am I now and so I think he's looking to explore 
different stories and ideas. And I think that's taking him in a more dramatic direction. Did he ever bust out a puppet on you? Dude loves <laughs> no, puppets. No, but I've, I've been to his house and seen puppets before. He definitely has them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my, my girlfriend said, well, you're forgetting the Muppet movie. It wasn't that goofy. It was earnest. I'm like, I don't know. When you're, when you're juxtaposed with a uh, felt frog, how ungoofy can you be? I wonder. <laughs> and then there's uh, Rooney Mara, who, what can you say about her? I mean, just train the camera on her and watch her do things. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, she, she's one of the most talented young actresses we have on this planet. And for me, it was about capturing the sort of quiet moments with her and 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 it's true you put the camera on her and you just let it run and and it's like at first you're like wait is she doing anything and yeah. then you realize oh my god it's everything mm-hmm. and and you can take away our witty dialogue or whatever we've written overwritten the scene and you can just let her her go and and you feel so deeply she's a person who doesn't she doesn't want to be seen, which is really interesting. And, and I think few actors have that quality because of the nature of what they're doing, which is look at me. Yeah. And she's someone who, who doesn't want to be seen and sort of floats under the radar. And I, to me, when you point a camera at someone like that, beautiful images come from that. I, yeah. I think you, you feel so much <clears throat> from her and there's so much behind what she's doing. But, but you'd, you'd have to point the camera in order to understand and get that. I think that is probably tied up with the true definition of ingenue. Yeah. Yeah. Where, totally. Where all actors, you're right, they might not be extroverts, they might be introverts, but they need the lens. But if, they, if, if somehow they could translate that we're uh, voyeurs and we're privileged enough to uh, look in on them, if they could translate that, it's captivating. You want to see the yeah. things you can't see. Like, look at these Planet Earth documentaries. The animals that are underground are the ones totally. you really want to watch. Yeah, I mean, I, and I think I respond to people like that more so than, than anything else. What's wrong with you? I'm just I'm processing. Oh. I mean, do you ever get out of your head even for one minute? Okay, let's do an experiment. Look at me. Look at me and tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. I'm driving. Okay. I don't know you very well. I think you're beautiful and alive. And if you killed yourself, it wouldn't just be sad. It would be a tragedy. Shut up. I'm sure this didn't happen, but I have this conception of one day on the set you and some of your stars are sitting around and you say well you know my dad was caligula and then your female <laughs> lead says well you know my great grandfather founded the pittsburgh steelers and my other great grandfather founded the giants and then your second female lead riley keogh is that riley keogh yeah she says she has the trump card because she says well my granddad's <laughs> elvis she wins tell me this something like this happened uh no we are none of us are those people to to have that conversation but uh but we are all aware of of our family's history and uh and and i think it i think it connects you in some way you know i I definitely think that i have that connection with rooney and riley because of that in some way where you are associated with with people that are sort of larger than life so tell me then the best way for a layman who meets the progeny of a famous person who they admire. So I don't mean Mussolini's granddaughter, right? So they meet someone and they greatly admire. And the first thing you want to say is like, I love your dad or I loved your grandfather. Do you just not do it? Is there a cool way to do it? Should you wait to the third question? What's the, uh, what's the viewer's guide on bringing it up in the best way? 
I don't know if there is if there's a guide to it. I mean, I've gotten because my dad's been in some really interesting, <laughs> sort of iconic, yeah. uh, out there films. I've I've had um, experiences of people. I was with my dad when I was like six years old. We were in Italy, and this guy comes up to the table and he's freaking out and saying something in Italian and I didn't understand what he was doing and then all of a sudden he like rips open his shirt and he had a tattoo of my dad on his entire chest okay and that was my first experience of like okay I have an interesting family wow um but no I I think everyone sort of reacts differently to celebrity or um I mean for me I I would freak out of basically if I saw any basketball player especially Kobe Bryant because I'm a massive Lakers fan we all have these uh, these people that we look up to, so I, I think it's cool. But then one day you go up to Kobe Bryant and you show him you have a tattoo of Jelly Bean Bryant, his father, <laughs> on your chest, and it all comes full circle. Yeah, yeah. But do you fly under like the Steenburgen radar because your last name is McDowell and you look a little like your dad? Do people not know about your mom or that yeah. your mom is your mom as much? Yeah, they don't. I and, and also I'm not. Um, again, like I, I love my parents to death and I'm very close to them, but I don't. I, I I've never tried to use their celebrity or use their thing in, in, in any way in terms of my career. So it's not something I sort of like publicly go out and say, but it was cool because my mom, my mom's in the opening scene of the discovery. And that was something that uh, she really wanted to work with Redford. And, and I know Redford admired her so much. And so I had her manager call her up and offer her uh, <laughs> the part and, she, and, and very formally. And yeah. he was like, yeah, it's just one scene. And she was like, why are you calling me if it's just one scene? He goes, well, this it's this young director, Charlie McDowell. And, and then she burst into tears. <laughs> <laughs> so this movie, and we were talking about this a little before, it's on Netflix. It's a Netflix yeah. movie. And that's like a new model, not for TV, but a newish model for movies. Where do you see that going? Is Netflix yeah. going to be the same thing as, you know, Paramount picks up a movie and distribute it? Fox does or Netflix does is going to be all equal? I think so. I mean, I, I think this is the year of Netflix original films. We're sort of the first or one of the first that's coming out this year. So it'll be interesting to see if it can hit not just our film, but just f their features in general can hit like the OA, Stranger Things that become these sort of yes. cultural shows that everyone sits down and watches. And it, it's harder because you spend eight hours watching those shows. So it becomes a, this sort of long mm -hmm. drawn out experience. And you know, this is a film, so it's an hour and a half and then, and then you're done. So it'll be interesting. I really am excited and love it. I also love that people can watch this. I hope that people watch this film more than once. Cause it feels like that kind of movie where you see it one time. And then if you watch it a second time, it's a totally different experience. So being on Netflix, you could watch it right away or yeah. you could watch it a week later or whatever. But let's say, we were also talking, for certain kinds of films, Netflix could be better. I mean, there can be really good films that don't do well at the box office, and then the all people, it gets reduced to, oh, that only that lost money, or that only yeah, made some money. And, and all, yeah, especially indie films. Yes. You know, it's like, a lot of these films, it's like they go on like 80 screens, mm -hmm. basically LA, New York sees them, and then they disappear, and then people discover them on Netflix. With a Netflix original, we go to 160-something countries. Uh, it's almost 100 million users at this point. So it's like so many different types of people, different cultures will see this film. And that, I mean, ultimately, that's why I make it. You yeah. know, it's for eyeballs. Charlie McDowell is the director and co-writer of The Discovery. Discover it on Netflix. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. 
And now the spiel. Yesterday, upon hearing the news that Syria's Bashar al-Assad had once more gassed his own people, the White House issued a statement that put some blame on Assad, but a little more blame on Barack Obama for enabling Assad. Today, Trump went beyond those comments and even hinted that he might understand the significance of chemical weapon use. It crossed a lot of lines for me. When you kill innocent children, innocent babies, babies, little babies, with a chemical gas that is so lethal, people were shocked to hear what gas it was. That crosses many, many lines beyond the red line, many, many lines. I, for one, understand that chemical weapons carry with them the designation weapon of mass destruction, though a daisy cutter bomb doesn't, and that's actually more deadly in the field. I also understand that there are many horrible ways to die in a war, and chemical weapons are just one. But I know that it's proper to have designations of weapons and that the nations of the world have agreed we're not going to use some of these, and chemical weapons certainly belong on that list. Well, here's another thing I understand. I understand why Trump spent most of his initial response blaming Obama. For one thing, the shorter part where he blames Assad, well, what are you going to do about Assad? If the answer is something... Well, that contradicts everything that the Trump administration has been saying. They've emphasized that their policy is to no longer try to depose Assad. Now, to be clear, trying to depose Bashar al-Assad was more or less the policy of the Obama administration, but they didn't realize that policy. It would have been the policy of the Hillary Clinton administration. They might have tried harder, but there is no Hillary Clinton administration. So maybe it seems to this incurious and transactional president that there is no point in saying we want this guy out if it's really hard to get him out and if it's likely that the guy's not going to leave. They also probably figure that if they say we want him out and he doesn't leave, it'll look like a loss. Losing. Sad. There are, of course, other reasons to decry a dictator, to say you want him gone, to draw lines around him, if you will. They tend not to understand these more subtle points. And I guess Trump figures if I say, oh, I'm not interested in getting him out of office, and then he stays in office, which looks like it's going to happen, he could just say, ah, that's one of those things I predicted all along, like Brexit or Obama being a Kenyan. If you're Donald Trump, there are other reasons to blame Obama. One is he does deserve some of the blame. The second is that the fact that he does deserve some of the blame will certainly resonate with a lot of Americans. And most people don't follow this too carefully. I mean, the people who were most offended and shocked by Trump's statement were the learned class of people who follow the news and can actually tell you if Assad is a Sunni or a Shia and further what branch of Shia he is. I gave away part of the answer there, didn't I? Also, Trump's predecessor, Obama himself, repeatedly blamed the George W. Bush administration for the messes that he was handed economically and with Iraq. I think that was proper to do so. And it should also be said, he never blamed them, say, five minutes after a car bomb went off in Baghdad. Trump, as always, wants to win the day's news cycle and then move on. Possibly you'll be distracted by something else. We know he will. This is especially true when he has no good answer to a question like what to do about Assad. Especially, especially when it's his policies that embolden Assad. So I think I figured out the calculation of one world leader. But one question remains, and in this section of the show, sometimes we play a game called One Question, One Question Only. I get a learned person on, and I ask them the burning question I haven't heard answered well elsewhere. Today's contestant is Joshua Keating, staff writer at Slate. He focuses on international affairs. Hello, Josh. Hey, Mike. So here's my question. 
I understand that he's a brutal tyrant and he'll stop at nothing to oppress his people. Yet why would Assad start again to use chemical weapons, knowing what he knows about the condemnation of the international community? And also, I would assume that the other kind of weapons he uses are fairly effective anyway. So the thing to understand about chemical weapons is that they tend to be indiscriminate and uncontrollable, which means they're not very effective as a tactical battlefield weapon, but they are very good at killing large numbers of civilians and just terrifying people. And this is the same thinking that's behind the barrel bombs that uh, the Syrian military also uses. So when you use chemical weapons, it's usually you're doing some form of signaling. And back in 2013, uh, when there was the last major attack, this was a signal of just how far he was willing to go to preserve his own power and that the international community was not actually going to dictate to him what he could do. And that paid off. Obama never you know, enforced the red line. And the, the deal he negotiated with Russia actually sort of helped Assad claw his way back to international acceptability and legitimacy. But this time, obviously, the context is different. And the attack came just a few days after Rex Tillerson and Nikki Haley explicitly said what's been assumed for years now, which is that the U.S. is not actually uh, serious about forcing him from power and that we've come to accept that Assad's going to remain in power after the war. So I'd say the attack is probably a demonstration to both Syrians and to foreign governments that, one, he still has these weapons and he's willing to use them, that, two, he's no longer constrained at all by the threat of U.S. military action, and that, three, that his international backers uh, namely Russia, are going to continually stick by him, uh, seemingly no matter what he does. And the gamble paid off the last time, and unfortunately, I think it's likely to again. So he's saying the shackles are off. I'm unrestrained. You don't believe me? This proves it. Exactly. Thank you, Josh. Excellent explanation. Thanks, Mike. And as a final thought, consider this. For all the talk of red lines and other lines, I think there is another type of line. It's the one between Trump coddling brutal dictators. It goes to Trump surrogates explicitly saying we're no longer in the game of boxing in their brutality. And then it ends with the dictator indulging in that brutality that was implicitly and explicitly countenanced. And that is a crossed line as well. That's it for today's show. Just producer Chris Brube stars in The Discovery 2. What happens to society after scientists prove that hot dogs are either a sandwich or not? Mary Wilson, just producer, is signed up to play the lead character in The Discovery 2, The Sandwich. She's a post-apocalyptic zombie hunter who dines on human flesh in the shocking aftermath of The Sandwich Thing. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, points out that Mary's character only dines on human flesh because she found out what is actually in hot dogs. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, asks, if you eat a person who ate hot dogs, aren't you really both eating hot dogs and people? And that raises a larger question, doesn't it? That if you have two hot dog non-eaters, but in between them is an actual hot dog, and you eat the whole mess of things, is that a sandwich? Even if it turns out that hot dogs weren't a sandwich, I don't want to give away the movie. The gist, we originally pitched the discovery to the sandwich as Hot Dog 2, the sequel, the titillating ski movie of the 80s. 
needs a new answer, needs an update, and yet in our version, it also centers on a cannibalistic apocalypse. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.